Good morning. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are online, uh, live or uh, on demand. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab. If you have, if you don't have a Bible with you here, uh, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Turn to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine. Um, that's on page one thousand one hundred and thirty-four. One one three four in our Bibles, uh, not necessarily in yours. <laughs> Uh, the outline, if you, uh, those of you who are in here have the sermon application guide, uh, at home you can, you can download it. Uh, it doesn't have any blanks this week. Really sorry for those of you who love to fill in the notes. Uh, last week I did it on purpose. This week I did, did it not on purpose. <laughs> I did it by accident. So, um, sorry about that. We are in our second week of our series, Gospel Integrity, which is a series going through Romans 9 through 11. It is a three-week series uh, through those chapters. We have been working through Romans one section at a time. The, um, so we've done two series already, chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8. This is our third series. Then we'll break it up with some other things and then come back to the last section, verse, chapters 12 through 16 uh, sometime in, in the new year. Uh, so let's pray. Let's ask God to illuminate his word to us. Uh, his, uh, this prayer is based on Ephesians 2.8, which uh, Amy, who was on the left on that video just a few moments ago, she puts together these prayers, the ones that we, and scripture readings that we do throughout our whole uh, service. And uh, this was a key, this is a great prayer to, or passage to build around because of where this sermon ends and where this passage ends. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the richness of your grace. You've offered us a life with you based on faith alone, not on what we've done or what we could do. Your word reveals your heart. As we look to your truth, open our eyes and our ears to you. Teach us and lead us by your spirit. Grow our faith and help us to share your grace with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in this series, we are back to one of the hardest passages in the Bible to understand. Also happens to be one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. The argument from Romans 9 through 11 is very, very dense. It's very complex. It's very foreign to us, foreign to our modern sensibilities, the things that are top of mind to us that we would like to hear about are not what is top of mind for the Apostle Paul in this passage. The passage is combustible. It's intimidating. It feels like a passage that should only should never be preached on in a church unless we have unlimited time. It should be in a lecture hall. It's like, like that's the only way to cover a passage like this in the way that uh, it feels like it would, it would fit. Um, and I want to be really frank with you. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, new to, uh, yeah, if you're just new to the Bible, my concern is that you're going to feel so confused by this passage and even by the sermon itself that you will uh, kind, kind of get discouraged and say, I'll never get this. This is way, way, way too complicated. And so um, understand this. Uh, the rest of us feel the same way with this passage, okay? That's, that's the first thing that you need to know. It is very complicated. It is very foreign to the way that we argue and the way that we think. 
Uh, the other thing that I want you to, to understand is that as a church, we are highly committed to getting you caught up on the Bible. And it's kind of a distinctive feature of Five Oaks is that we want to take people from a place where maybe they don't know the Bible very well to a place where they are conversant in the Bible. They understand the major stories and the story that it tells. And, and so that's something that we focus on in our church. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. There's going to be plenty in this sermon for you. Be listening for it. Even though sometimes you might be like, I have no idea what you're talking about or where this is, where this is going. So Romans 9 through 11 is a distinctive section of Romans. It seeks to offer an answer to a problem, one problem. All three chapters try to answer one problem. And it's this, if most of Israel, most of Judaism, hasn't believed in Jesus, their Messiah, their King, their Savior, that's been presented to them by God, does that mean his promises to them have failed? They, so many of the Jewish people have not followed Jesus. He makes all these promises in the Old Testament to them. Has his promises failed? Have his promises failed? And you may say, okay, so how does that speak to me? Well, really important. If his promises failed for them, what about his promises to us through Christ? That's like the, the major takeaway that we need to, to be thinking about. Um, so the reason that this is not like a major question in our mind is because modern Christianity is so divorced from its historical roots in the Old Testament. So many people don't like the Old Testament. They think they don't like the God of the Old Testament. I, you know, I like to follow up and say, what don't you like about him? Well, let's Let's talk about that because I, I don't think I would like that God either because there's so many misunderstandings of the Old Testament. And so, so much of historic Christianity, so many people who call themselves Christians are not actually Christians. I mean, that's always been the case. Uh, they are people who are trying to live sometimes by the philosophy of Christianity. There's a philosophy, a worldview. They like it. They're drawn to it. But Christianity is about a relationship with God through Christ. It's not about just buying into some ideas and then going to church and having the pastor give me something that I can use for this week based on those ideas, and then I go out and I try, and then I come back and I get recharged and some more information. It's not that. It's about a growing relationship with Jesus. This is why we worship corporately. It's so important to worship corporately because it's, it's part. If you're here just for the sermon, you're, you're, you've missed You've missed what it's about. You've actually, literally missed what it's about. It's not just about information. It's not just about a sermon. So this is a real letter written by the Apostle Paul, a Jewish Pharisee who believes Jesus is the Messiah. And he's writing to a church made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that, in that first century context, that created a lot of tension. And so... Paul is addressing some of those tensions in this real letter, not an essay, not a book, a real letter, an epistle meant to be read out loud to the congregation and then meant to be meditated on for years to come. All right, so what is Paul doing in his answer? Okay, this isn't, what is his answer? This is what he's doing. It's really important to understand what he's doing. Uh, this is not in your sermon application guide, but 
Paul is retelling, in a sense, a story of Israel through Scripture. I mean, it's like every other sentence is just a quotation from the Old Testament in this passage. And he's trying to show us that God's promises didn't fail if you understand to whom the promises were actually made. And when you understand to whom they're made, then you can see that they're actually being fulfilled. And they're actually being fulfilled in Paul's day, and they're actually still being fulfilled in our day. So we left off in Romans 9.18, but we need to review a little bit, not just because many of you missed last week, but because even if you were here, there was a lot of information in there. So here's the first thing in review. How Paul begins Romans 9 through 11 and how he ends is very, very important. So Paul begins in the first five verses with a lament. It's a form of worship. You have all kinds of lament psalms. And his lament is that his people, and when he says his people, he's thinking his parents. <laughs> he's thinking his boyhood friends. You know, His people, so many of them, not only don't follow Christ, but they have opposed Christ and have opposed him. And so he's agonizing it, and he starts with a lament. And then he ends with a doxology, which is a formal element of worship. It's a praise hymn, and he ends with that. And as I said last week, we have to read this passage with the end in mind, what he says at the end. So if you're in chapter 9, look at chapter 11, beginning in about verse 33 or so, as our uh, reader, one of our five ochres, reads the passage. Follow along with him. Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. For the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All right. What's he saying at the very end? He's saying, basically, after all I've said, there are still so many unanswered questions. There's still so much mystery to the things that I'm dealing with in this passage. It says to us that we ought to approach a passage like this with a lot of theological humility, uh, not with a confidence like, I'm going to explain this thing exactly to you, and, uh, and you're going to just completely understand everything. So Paul, in chapters 9 through 11, makes five points. And he doesn't do it just in a linear fashion. There is a sort of linear aspect to it, but he keeps circling back around to the various points. So I want to review that because this is, this is the whole argument of these chapters. It begins with God's promises were never intended for every descendant of Abraham. And he points out that, uh, that uh, for example, Abraham had more than one son, but only one of the sons, the promises, was given to him and his descendants. Uh, Isaac had more than one son, but only one son was the promises made. So he says, notice this thread that goes through the Bible, that God's promises were never intended for all. So if you say, well, all have not come, or most have not come, he says, it was never intended for that. God has always chosen some and excluded others from among Abraham's descendants. It's just a fact, as you read it, that he made those kinds of choices. The goal has always been Two, this is really important, to bless all the nations through faithful Israelites. So if anybody's like, why are the Gentiles believing this? But most of the Jews are not. He's like, it was always intended 
to reach the nations, which is what Gentiles means, the non-Jews, to reach the nations. Okay, so this is not like something that God, well, I'm so disappointed in my own people, therefore, now I'm going to open the door for the Gentiles. Nope, from the beginning, Gentiles. Number four, the distinguishing mark for God's people has always been faith, not ethnicity, not performance, all right? It's always been that they put their faith in God. Romans 4, that, that's the whole argument in Romans 4, for example. And then finally, uh, we'll just touch on this today, perhaps God will use the response of the nations to eventually win back Abraham's descendants, more of Abraham's descendants. So he actually talks, quotes the Old Testament to talk about nations following God, creating envy for the people of Israel. All right, so that's, that's the idea that's there. Uh, all he says in these chapters fit into those five main points. It provides a framework for understanding what he's talking about there. He does have a couple of tangents. We looked at one of them yesterday. We're going to kind of follow one of them today as well. So the other thing I did last week was to give you some interpretive principles for understanding this passage, but you can also apply it to so many other passages. So here are some of the interpretive principles. They're a little bit unconventional. Everything that Paul writes between the lament and the doxology is vitally important, but it's not a comprehensive answer. It's just not. It's very focused. It's a very focused answer. All right, um, next. What Paul doesn't tell us in Romans 9 through 11 is sometimes as important to the story as what he tells us. This is something that a lot of times we don't understand when we're reading Scripture. Whether it be Jesus teaching, Paul, we don't understand that that is a distinctly Jewish way of teaching. That it causes you to think, meditate, and ponder. Think back to the story is what he's constantly doing here. Think back to the story. And when you think back to the story, you're going to get an aha, but you've got to know the story in order to get the aha. So what he doesn't tell us is as important oftentimes, and Paul expects us to fill in the story with what we, don't, what we know from God's word. Now there's one other principle that I want to introduce that's not from last week, but uh, I want to introduce, but I need to give a little bit of background. So Romans 9 through 11 is controversial because it deals with the subject of divine election. That means a God who makes choices ahead of time. It deals with God's absolute sovereignty, a God who is not going to be frustrated in his purposes. It deals with things like we oftentimes call predestination, those kinds of things. So you can imagine why it's a controversial topic or, or passage. Um, so I'm going to give you a principle that says nothing about where you should land on those topics, all right? So you got to hear what I'm saying. There's nuance here, all right? So here's the third principle. Is this it? Okay. Romans 9 through 11 doesn't teach on divine election or on God's absolute sovereignty. It's not a teaching on that. It assumes both. It assumes that God elects. It assumes that God is absolutely sovereign, and then it applies it to this passage. All right, so there's the nuance. Uh, this is not a teaching on election. It's not a teaching on divine, God's divine sovereignty. There are two major theological camps, you might say, within Christianity. They do not refute. They both believe God is absolutely sovereign. They both believe 
Now, when it gets down to ground level, if you listen to people, they think they're part of one camp or the other, they're not really reflecting it well. Because they, the way they talk shows that they don't believe God is absolutely sovereign. Okay? Or, or, or either other mistakes like that. But the two major camps, the people who are heavily invested on they believe that God makes choices. He, there is divine election, and they believe in God's absolute sovereignty. The difference is in the nature and extent and the how in the camps. All right? What are the nature of his choices? How does he do them? How deep does it go? One camp, it can sound like the other, to the other camp like you've got a God who's just got chess pieces and everything is determined and he's making sure everything happens because of his absolute sovereignty. He will not be frustrated. On the other side, people, you know, this side might hear this, like, it's, it's a free-for-all. You know, everybody's got free will and you just give them a chance and, and there's no election going on. It, th- that's what it sounds like to each other, but that's, that's where the, the thing happens. Here's where the damage is done by theologians is they treat Romans 9 especially as if it were an abstract theological discussion. And it's not. It is applying those principles to a very particular problem. In some ways, you could say that the less you know about those theological you know, camps, the more you actually might be able to understand what Paul is talking about because you're not going to import ideas that are are not part of really what's going on there. Except that if you don't know about those camps, you probably also don't know the Old Testament scriptures that he's quoting so extensively that you can just get completely lost. So here's what I'm trying to say. We're all on a level playing field. This is a hard passage for everyone. This is hard if you're brand new to the Bible. This is hard if you have spent all your life studying these things. This is a hard passage to understand. It's a level playing field. We're all hampered in some ways from understanding it. So last week we saw how Paul raises the issue of God's promises failing, and he makes this first point. He points out this thread in Scripture that, um, that if you think that God's promises have failed, what you don't realize is that God's promises weren't for everyone. And so Abraham more, had more than one son, it was only for one. Isaac had two sons, twins. The promises were only for one son. So that's divine election. Nobody can argue with that. Nobody can argue with that. And, and Paul makes the case. God made a choice beforehand. All right, so let, let me back up one, one, one second here because divine election and God's absolute sovereignty. God is absolutely sovereign. He will not be frustrated in his, what he's going to accomplish, which is really good news for us. Nothing can overcome God's great promises to us, okay? You need to, you need to build your life on God's absolute sovereignty. You do. Otherwise, you live kind of like all the time wondering what's going to come next. He does it through divine election. It's part of the way he does it. He makes choices beforehand, He makes choices beforehand, and you can't deny it if you believe the Bible. You cannot deny that he makes choices beforehand, okay? So these things work work together. The next thing, so Paul says it was never meant because God was making choices, and it was through Isaac, and then it was through Jacob, not Esau. The next thing Paul does is he goes off on a tangent because the natural inclination is to ask uh, what he says in 914. So look at 914. What shall we say 
is God unjust? If God is making these choices, you know, are we just pawns in his plan, you know, and he's making these choices? And he says, not at all. And so in answering that, he, re- he remembers or Paul recalls God in the Old Testament revealing himself to Moses as a compassionate God. And it's really, really important to understand God is a compassionate God. And then the next thing, right related to it, he says, God will use even someone's rejection of him, even rebellion, even a hard heart towards him. He will use that ultimately for his purposes. And he gives the example of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, all right? But as we saw last week, if you were here last week, basically he says, with Pharaoh, God hardened an already hard heart. Remember, Pharaoh had a hard heart. He hardened his own heart. He had a hard heart. He hardened his own heart. It goes on until finally it says God hardened his heart. And then it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then something happens during the eighth plague. He says, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. So God is hardening an already hard heart. It takes us back to Romans chapter 1. So if you've read it before, if you were here when we were doing that series, here's a kind of some of the highlights from Romans chapter 1, talking about humanity in general. The wrath of God, which is not like this, like, ah, God, okay. The wrath of God is his justice, all right. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, interesting, it is being revealed. In Paul's day, it's being revealed today. Okay, so how is it being revealed? Let's see it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So already darkened hearts get darkened even more. How? What happens? Therefore, God gave them over in, their sinful desi- in the sinful desires of their hearts. That's where their heart is already. He gave them over to sexual impurity. Okay, as you continue reading, it's not just sexual impurity. It's everything, every kind of sin that you can possibly imagine. He gave them over for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's the wrath of God being revealed right now. He lets us be our own gods. He lets us live with the consequences of it. So we're experiencing the wrath of God In this sense, there's more than one sense, but in this sense, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He let them choose their gods, all right? They already have darkened hearts. He darkens it even more. He says, okay, go. You've got it. You can have it. Now, this raises another possible objection, the whole Pharaoh thing. So this, in a sense, what he says next is a continuation, we're going to pick up where we left off, is a continuation of that tangent, but it also circles around to some of the points he's making. You see how complicated it is, <laughs> right? So let's pick up where he left off, 919, and, um, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 10. There's going to come a point in the sermon where I'm just going to read a whole swath of it, all right? And uh, we're going to be looking for certain things as we listen to it. So the first section is 19 through 24. It's continuing that whole thing about Pharaoh. In verse 19, in chapter 9, it says, well, after the Pharaoh thing, it says, well, one of you will say to me, then why does God blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Okay, if he's hardening hearts, you know, it's like the old, the devil made me do it, right? Uh, In this case, God made me do it, and he hardened my heart. So that's the question. 
Uh, we'll, we'll come back to his answer here in a second. But that's the question. Then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? The answer, by the way, is no one is able to resist his will. But why would he still blame us? Why would he still judge us based on our decisions? Uh, so his answer is super controversial, but much more limited in scope than what most people think. So before we look at it, I want you to consider for a moment. This is an exercise in theological imagination. How could Paul have answered that question? From what we know, even just from Romans, from what we know from last week's sermon, from what we know from Pharaoh, how could Paul have answered the questions? Who is able to resist his will? Paul could have said, if that's your question, let's go back to Romans 1. And to the story, and let's go back to the story of Pharaoh. God hardens hearts that are already hardened towards him. His judgment is to let their hearts rule them. They get to defy him. They get to defy. He allows that to happen. And then he allows them to live with the consequences of that. By the way, from Christian theology, from the biblical theology, that's our world. It's a mess. It's the world we've created. The world we've created. Now, that would be a way to answer the question. And then Paul could have then said, and now you might be saying, <laughs> uh, so kind of to follow his, his way of, of making these arguments, so now you might be saying, well, why, didn't, why did God harden, already harden hearts? Why didn't he soften those hearts? Isn't that a legitimate question? Why didn't he just soften those hearts? With Pharaoh, for example, he's got a hard heart. He hardens his own heart, right? Why not make the, why not make it irresistible for him? Why not say, Pharaoh, I can do this, this, and this for you if you'll let Israel go? He could have done that. He does that in other places, all right? So why not do that? So there's all kinds of questions, and questions upon questions upon questions. Paul doesn't go there. He could have, but he doesn't go there. He goes there in other passages. He doesn't go there. Look at how Paul answers the question. This is why it's somewhat controversial, because we're not used to this kind of answer. We don't like this kind of answer. So let's read the question again, 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? That's where he goes. That's where he goes. Shall what was formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me this way? That's an Old Testament quotation. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Okay, so the answer is um, controversial in a lot of ways uh, because... If you follow what he's saying, what he's saying is, um, it sounds like he's saying that, well, you have no right to answer, ask all these questions after he's answered them in other places. He says, hey, by the way, you have no right to answer, ask these questions. And it sounds like he's saying, you're nothing more than a lump of clay. You, oh, human being, you're nothing more than a lump of clay. And God has made some of those lumps into pots that bring glory to him, and some he's made them to just be thrown in the trash and be destroyed. That can be pretty upsetting. 
to hear that argument. And it's very controversial. So I want to go back to the principles that I gave earlier. Okay, there was a method to my madness, all right? So let's take the three interpretive principles that we looked at earlier. So the first one was, everything that Paul writes between the lament and the doxology is vitally important, but it's not a comprehensive answer. So this is not the only answer that Paul could give, okay? There's other things that he could have given in answer to this question. Um, second principle. What Paul doesn't tell us in Romans 9 through 11 is sometimes as important to the story as what he does tell us. Paul expects us to fill in the story with what we can know from God's word. I can't show you this in detail, but when Paul uses the potter and clay analogy, he's borrowing from a long tradition in the Old Testament. So if you really want to understand what he's talking about, you have to go back and you need to see all the times that the prophets in particular talk about the potter and the clay. So in the Bible story, when it's talking about clay and a potter, God being the potter and clay, it's always talking about Israel. Not about humanity in general, always talking about Israel. And God is shaping Israel for his purposes and his purpose is to bless the whole world. But as you read the Old Testament, you discover that Israel refuses to be molded in that way. They're like, mm, no, I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm not going to give in to the molding that you're doing of me. So God, using the analogy in the Old Testament, the prophets, God remolds them in such a way that many of them will end in destruction. So if you're not going to do my purposes positively, I'm going to use your rebellion to still accomplish my purposes. I'm going to reshape you in a way that will lead to many of you being destroyed. You won't be a vessel for my glory. But you're not going to stop my promises. I'm still going to get the word out to the nations. Paul expects people to know that. He expects people to know how that imagery is being used because he's just making little references and expecting people to go, potter and clay. Oh. Yeah, God can use for common purposes or he can use them for his glory. The third principle, Romans 9 through 11 doesn't teach on divine election or on God's absolute sovereignty. It assumes both and applies both to Paul's concern in this passage. So this isn't about God sometime in the past, this passage here, sometime in the past determining to make two kinds of humans some destined for glory and others destined for destruction. It's about whether or not God's promises to Israel have failed. Now he's going to elaborate on how even when he has to reshape them for common use or destruction, how that's not the end of the story for them. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in, in just a moment. So, uh, Israel rebels against God's shaping them into what he wants to do for the world. It's not an abstract teaching of all humanity and God creating all of humanity. Now, it just doesn't speak into it, okay? I'm not saying what your position should be. I'm not saying which side of the theological spectrum you should be. I'm just saying this passage doesn't speak in. Does it give us some principles that we can learn from? Yes, 
And a lot of times, people break those principles. They just kind of do away with God's sovereignty and God's election and all of that. You just have to understand, it's there. It's, it's, it's his sovereignty. His election is there. That's how he accomplishes his purposes, and he will not be frustrated. So while divine election and God's absolute sovereignty are true, the exact nature of how that divine election and God's absolute sovereignty work isn't explained by the analogy of clay and the potter. I know that's a, it's a very nuanced argument and it may, it may hit you later, but um, Paul isn't saying this applies to all of humanity. It might, but he's not saying that at all. So someone shared with me this week uh, during afternoon pickleball, and uh, they were in a break. I was just watching people play, and I went in there, and, and she said, you know, that, that whole thing about Pharaoh and hardening his heart, it's really troubling to me because I have, I have relatives who just have had such hard hearts towards God, and I'm so concerned that, they're gonna, that God has hardened their hearts, and they're gone. They're done. And I said, well, let's, let's go back to what it says about Pharaoh. It's not making any kind of comment on whether Pharaoh is like lost forever because God hardened his heart. In fact, we're all in that same boat, Romans 1. When it says he gives us over, he's basically saying he hardens our already hardened hearts. He lets us pursue that. Does that mean every human is lost? No. Theoretically, Pharaoh could still turn to God for salvation in the story. He could have. And, and th th that Pharaoh, which if you read the article from last week, kind of represents the Pharaohs, that Pharaoh could have, could have turned to God for salvation. He is not unsavable because, because it's not the point the passage is making. Um, it's the same thing uh, that Paul, it, 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 in the same way, if you go back to the Old Testament, the potter and the clay, God is shaping Israel to be a blessing. You read the stories that use that, the analogy. And they will not be molded. So he changes the mold to make them into vessels of destruction. And he will use even that to accomplish his good purposes. Then Israel repents. And what does he do? He shapes them back so that more of the descendants are once again walking in God's will. It's a dynamic thing. It's, it's not like, you know, once he shapes it for something else, it's inevitable that they're going to just be destroyed forever. He puts it in the fire, you know, takes it out, uses it for a purpose, and then goes, and the other ones he keeps, you know, on the top shelf. It's not what it's saying. It's constantly molding constantly molding. There comes a day when you're put in the fire and the yes, but there is still hope. There's still hope. All right, so um, go look at verses 25 through 29 really quick here. Um, again, I want you to look at verse 6, 9, 6. Let's go back to constantly remember what we're talking about. Most of Israel has not believed. Paul's heart is broken. It's torn. He says, though, it is not as though God's word had failed. All right. That's what he's making. That's what he's saying. Um, and then he adds in verse 7, he says, he answers it. Um, by saying, nor because, uh, and he answers it in verse 6, saying, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children, all right? So he's still answering that. Now jump to verse 23. We'll just kind of pick up part of what we just read. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, quote, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the loving God. You understand, you understand what's going on here? He's saying, he's saying look at the Old Testament. The, he's talking about the Gentiles, not my people. They were always part of the plan. All right, that was one of the interpretive points. And at one point, they were not my people. Remold. Now they are my people. And he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, another one of the great prophets of Israel. Though the number of the Israelites is like the sand by the sea, okay, by ethnicity, the Jewish nation grew into millions. Although that only the remnant will be saved. Isaiah told us this. Okay? There is a remnant that will be saved, a smaller group within the larger group. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, unless he were making divine choices ahead of time, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Okay? I may have read a little bit in there. All right, but if God, if not for God's work in His absolute sovereignty, we would be gone from the face of the earth, like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so God is making sovereign choices all throughout the whole story. The Gentiles are part of that story, part of the goal all along. Fits into the third thing that Paul tries to say here, right? which is the goal has always been to bless the nations through faithful Israelites. And then now he's going to go into the fourth one, which is the distinguishing mark of God's people has always been faith, not ethnicity. It's always been. And he's already made the argument in Romans 4. He's just going to drive it home in a new way and bring in some new elements here. So Paul does this by circling back around to some other points and anticipating the fifth point. He is going to anticipate what he deals with in chapter 11, which is perhaps God is going to use the response of the Gentiles, the nations, in order to eventually win back the rest of Abraham's descendants. So I'm just going to read the rest of it. Here's what I want you to get. Remember, the fourth point, it's always been about faith. And he's going to quote passage after passage after passage. after Back in, back in Romans 4... He makes the point with one verse from, the, um, from Genesis where a Abraham believed God and he was reckoned, counted as righteous and made him right with God. There was a whole case around that. Faith, faith is central, faith is central. Now he's just going to give us passage after passage. So listen to what he's saying about faith making us right with God. Righteousness of God always means 
the righteous, well, it's God is righteous, but then we can be made righteous with him. So it, it goes both ways. It's a righteousness of God that we get. It's a righteousness of God that he is. All right, so it always goes both ways. So here we go. We're just going to start reading. We're going to read a lot here. But listen, I'll just try to point out every time. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? Like Gentiles, they weren't doing you know, they're just kind of doing their own thing, following idols and everything like that. By the way, just like Abraham was, following idols, and then God, in his divine election, calls Abraham to something. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, they've not attained their goal? Are you kidding me? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Believe. Faith, all right? It's, it's just coming. It's by faith, not by works. Chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God. Okay, they didn't know meaning. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They did not submit to God's righteousness because they didn't get it. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's not, the law was never meant to kind of define all of God's people. It had a purpose and that purpose in defining God's people is no longer the way God's people are defined. And it's always been faith running through it anyway. So it's complicated. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by law. The person who does these things will live by them. In other words, you live or you die by the law. You want to be a law keeper? You want to be, you know, get right with God by your performance? Then you will be judged based on your performance. And Paul earlier makes the case, you won't come out well. <laughs> you, you won't. So... Um, Verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith, there's faith again, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. This part is really complicated. That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the deep. That is to bring Christ from the dead. But what does it say? It gets a little clearer here. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. In other words, it's been there all along. You've been able to read about it all the time. I'm, I'm reading the scripture to you and you've got to see this. That, uh, that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right? That's a message that we can all understand, right? <laughs> Some of the other stuff's a little confusing, but that's a message that we can all understand. If you believe, declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means being made right with God. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We're going to have baptisms next week. Part of what they're going to be doing is professing. Professing Christ with their mouths. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him is never put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's, again, he's quoting the Old Testament. He says, this has been part of the story all along. Why has it been missed? All right, he's just quoting passage after passage. You can see in the footnotes 
um, in your Bibles. How then can they call on the one they have not believed? This is really, really important. This is our mission. This is why we're called. This is why Jesus says, go to all the world and be my witnesses, okay? How then can they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written? Quote for the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news, the gospel. For Isaiah says, again, he said it, Lord, who has believed in your message? He was kind of like shaking his head. Nobody, it looks like nobody's believed. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ, because it's all been going towards that. And I, but I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all, this is from another quote, into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. All right, so this is Paul, the hope he's holding on to. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Divine election. Do you see it? God revealing himself to people who are not like, they're so good, they're just seeking out, God, where are you? No, they weren't even seeking me. But I reveal myself to them. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Again, he can say that about everybody, but he's talking about the people of Israel right now. Okay, they are not like on their own, these rejectors of God. All right. Here's the message that we need to hear from that whole passage. God calls us to put our faith in him and in what he has done for us in Christ. Simple message. All right, hold on to your seats. Let's go back to Romans chapter 10. And what does he say? Can I have the next slide, please? For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Next passage. Going back to Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets were pointing all the time. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, Jew and Gentile. And all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, made right with God, freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He bought us back. He bought us back from this direction we were going. Next slide. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. There can be no boasting in faith. For we maintain that a person is made right by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify, make right, the circumcised by faith, the Jews, and the uncircumcised through the same faith, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Another passage, Ephesians 2, 8, said it's going to come back in. For it is by 
grace, God's grace, that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. No one can boast. You can't be like, I, I believe, not like that, that terrible unbeliever over there. No, you, you cannot boast. It's grace. You, it should be humbled by it. Next, this goes back to John's gospel. He came, Jesus came to that. This is his Christmas story, by the way. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. God calls us to put our faith in him. When we put our faith in him, the scripture tells us, we are redeemed. We are made right with him. We receive the righteousness of Christ. It's no longer our performance. Oh, God, look what a good person I've been. I hope, I hope I've been good enough. No, it is by putting our faith in him, and then he saves us by his grace. What's his grace? Jesus went to the cross and took our penalty. That's why he can do it. It's not because God doesn't care about our sin. He cares enough to take it on himself. He's torn to pieces for our sakes. Have you put your faith in Christ or are you just trying to live the principles, or are you just skeptical about the whole thing? Have you put your faith in Christ for your salvation? Have you done it? We celebrate this every week. We take the bread, and we remember he died in our place. His body was broken for us. And we take the cup, remember that his blood was shed in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. If you've not put your faith in Christ, do it now. Right now, while I'm praying, just put your faith in Christ. Ask him to be your savior. Ask him to be your Lord, the king of your life, the sovereign king of your life. Begin a relationship with him. You will be made right by your faith because you put your faith in what he has done for you, not in your own performance. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you that your plans will not fail. E even when we stand against them, your plans will not fail. We thank you for your grace that constantly shapes and reshapes the hope that it gives us. It gives us hope. We're not just destined to be far from you. You offer us hope. I pray for anybody here today who has not put their faith in you. I pray that they'll at least take a step towards you. And I thank you for anyone who today put their faith in you for the first time in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.